You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. A lot earlier than usual this Monday because uh, Chris Smith is busy <laughs> and thankfully he was able to uh, agree to an earlier time because it is important for us at year 702 to have all of your science questions answered. It's still gone very quiet for answered. me. I don't know if you can hear me, but I can't hear you guys. I can hear you very, very clearly, Dr. Ah, Smith. Ah, there we go. Africa. <laughs> Good to talk to you. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a very, very long while. Thank you very much. It's lovely to chat to you too. I was actually watching you and me together on YouTube the other day because do you remember oh, yes. when we were in Cape Town yes. at the, at the yes. Science Centre? And um, it was 2016. I thought, well, oh, hasn't time flown? But, I, you know, I look, I look a lot younger then. <laughs> that was the last time I think we saw each other, actually. That but is it was, true. That was, that was great fun um, because we, we did that, that sort of Q&A session down there Correct, at, um, yeah. at the Science Centre. And, and the questions were, were brilliant like they always are. Oh, we can't wait to have you back in South Africa again, Dr. Christmas, so that we can have those <laughs> engagements. Just just let's get right, right. this pandemic underway. Speaking of which, the very same question, I suppose, is rela- the first question this afternoon is related to viruses and is from Gamo in Medran. Gamo, good afternoon. What's your question for the Naked Scientist? Yes, hi. Yeah, my question has to do with, um, I would like to find out what causes a virus to mutate and um, whether there is any difference in propensity to mutate in vaccinated and unvaccinated, and what would cause the difference if there is one. All right, Kamo, thank you very much for that question. Three questions in one there for you, uh, Chris. The answer to this is that viruses use as their genetic code the same stuff that we do, DNA, or a chemical relative of DNA called RNA. In the case of the new coronavirus that's knocking around, it uses RNA. But those two molecules are very similar chemically, and they're copied and reproduced in cells in nearly identical ways. And when we copy and reproduce genetic material, if we do it really fast, we occasionally make mistakes. And in the same way that if you were sitting in a lesson and the teacher said, I want you to copy this stuff down off the blackboard, and they gave you an hour to do it, You have plenty of time to do it slowly, carefully, and check your work, and you wouldn't make mistakes. But if you do it at a frantic pace because the dinner bell's going to go or the teacher's going to send you home, you'd probably rush it and you'd probably make mistakes. You might spell some of the words you copy down wrong. They're the same words, but they now contain spelling errors. The genetic code is pretty much the same. There are four letters in the alphabet rather than 26 that the genetic code uses. But if you put the wrong letter in and spell some of the words wrong, you get a word that is subtly different. And so when that virus, if it grows in a cell and has spelling errors, those are mutations, those are changes that will ultimately, because you're effectively changing the recipe that codes for future viruses, you will end up with viruses that look and behave slightly differently. Some viruses do this more than others, and it just so happens that the ones that use RNA tend to do it more often than the ones that use DNA, because DNA is a more robust way to store your message, and there's a backup copy of the DNA message within the DNA molecule, whereas RNA, there's only one copy, and if you get that wrong, you've no way of finding the mistake. So, bottom line, some viruses do this a lot, some viruses do it less Viruses that do it a lot include norovirus that causes diarrhea and vomiting and flu as well, and HIV. Those all make lots of mistakes, and as a result, they evolve and change. 
Whereas viruses like chickenpox, a DNA virus, they change much more slowly, but they can still change. Do vaccines make a difference to this process? Well, in some respects, they might, because if you place a barrier in the way of the spread of an infectious disease, and that's what vaccination does, is it creates a wall of immunity across the population then the virus is now going to focus its efforts on breaching that wall wherever there's a gap. So in other words, if the wall is impenetrable to viruses that look a certain way, but a virus comes along that looks slightly different or has a slightly different characteristic, it can go over the wall. And so what you're doing is putting what we call strong selective pressure on the virus to change in a way that enables it to go over the wall because the only viruses that can go over the wall are the ones endowed with that special characteristic and then they will spawn further outbreaks. So yes, when we vaccinate people against anything actually, we put the virus or the thing we're vaccinating against under selective pressure, tending to push it to, evo to evolve in a certain way. And we know this happens with influenza. When the flu season comes, because we vaccinate the population of the world against flu, we force the flu to evolve in a certain direction. And therefore, we would expect to see the same with this new coronavirus as well. Vaccinating people will encourage the virus to evolve in a certain direction to bypass the wall of immunity that the vaccine produces in the population. Come on, a very important question. Thank you very much for asking it. Lerato, you've called in from the uh, CBD of Johannesburg. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you very much. How are you doing? Um, well, thank you. I would like to ask a good doctor about the bladder. Go Why ahead. is it that on a normal occasion you can go about doing your normal, your normal business and not feel as pressed as when you step into the house? You could go, you, you might not <laughs> even realize that you were pressed, but the moment I step into the house, I need, I'm, I'm squeezing, I'm jumping, I'm unbuttoning. And, yeah, you just have to, it's almost like there's this urgent need to use the bathroom immediately. Whereas you've been going about the whole day, but the moment you step in the front door, it's like usually at the key. Once you put the key in the door, the bladder starts misbehaving. So, and, I it, like and it feels, why. and it often feels like that key is taking forever to turn, right? Because <laughs> it's an urgency. Now it's an emergency. And exactly. I'd like to know why that happens. That's an important question, Lerato. Chris? Well, there's a massive case here of brain over bladder. When we know we can't get to a loo, then your brain strongly suppresses the signals of the I-need-to-go urge feeling. And your bladder is under the control of an automatic part of your nervous system called the autonomic nervous system that keeps your bladder under control when it needs to be out of sight, out of mind, and means you don't wet yourself. But when you know that you are within reach of a lavatory, then the suppression signals are removed and the signals that are saying how stretched or full the bladder is start to make it through into your consciousness. And that then starts to tell the autom autonomic or automatic parts of the nervous system, you need to prepare, you've got a chance to go for a wee. And this whole thing goes building up and building up with the more attention you focus on it, the more you need to go because the more ready the bladder becomes to empty. And that's why it's uh, almost a frantic dash for the loo at the last minute when you've been holding on for a long time. But until you got to that point, you were able to suppress it because you knew you weren't within reach of the loo. 
you weren't within reach of that amazing sensation of, oh, thank goodness. So as a result, you psychologically switched it off and it kept the bladder inactive. But as soon as it knew you're within reach of the toilet, it starts to build the electrical activity in those particular nerve circuits, getting ready to make your bladder empty. And that causes an increase in pressure in the bladder, stimulating the stretch receptors even more. And that makes you want to go even more. I'd love to know how long long has been for you. Do, do send me a WhatsApp to 072-702-1702. I know somebody who held it in, knowing very well that he needed the loo for five and a half hours. And I'm going, that cannot be healthy in any way whatsoever. But he had good reason for that. Uh, Donovan, you've called him from Germiston. What's your question for uh, Chris? Hi, Dr. Chris in uh, Africa. Uh, in terms of uh, identical twins, why do they sometimes say and do exactly the same thing at the same time? Thank you. Thank you very much, Donovan. Chris? Well, twins come in two flavors, identical and non-identical. And they're produced by two totally different me- mechanisms during development. Non-identical twins are where two different eggs are fertilized by two different sperm. It just so happens there are two eggs there and there's plenty of sperm around to fertilize them, and so you get two completely independent developing babies. But with identical twins, one egg is fertilized by one sperm, and for some reason, and we don't know exactly why this happens, but for some reason, the embryo divides, and it divides into two. But because it came from a single egg fertilized by a single sperm, these two individuals are genetically identical, therefore they end up looking identical biochemically they are identical and because they are identical many of the processes that put them together encourage them to grow up and they're growing up side by side as the you don't want to say mirror image because they are effectively the same as each other but they're sharing life experience they're sharing the same education the same stimulation the same environment food there are so many shared experiences because they are identical almost in age give or take a few minutes most And as a result, it's unsurprising that they should develop behaviours that are identical because they've got a a brain which has wired itself up in as identical a way as it can between the two and their education and life experiences are going to be so similar that the reactions that people tend to programme into themselves socially and so on are going to also be very, very similar between the two because their upbringing, their nurture has been nearly identical as well as their nature. So that's why you tend to see this uncanny thing where one twin does something and the other one tends to have exactly the same reaction. It's because they've got that shared lived experience. Interesting. Alistair, you've called in from Boxburg. What's your question for the Naked Scientist? Hi, Africa and Dr. Chris. I'm pretty sure Chris will know that a is actually an acronym for autosomal dominant compulsive helio-ophthalmic outburst syndrome. In other words, A-C-H-O-O-A-T-U-E, sneezing is one for the pub quizzes. I wonder how many listeners know that. So how does sneezing actually work? I've got a couple of questions. Do animals sneeze the same way? Why do we normally sneeze a minimum of twice and why do we sometimes sneeze when we come into bright sunlight? And can we sneeze with our eyes open? There is an urban legend that says your eyes will pop out, you know, all that. Cheers. Alistair, <laughs> thank you very much. He's really thought about those questions, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. Well, let's lay to rest the myth first. 
Will your eyes pop out if you sneeze with them open? The answer is no, they won't. There's no pressure behind the eye because the back of your eye is not in connection with your airways and so there'd be no way for pressure to build when you sneezed behind the eye to pop out your eyes. The other piece of evidence I can bring to the party is I have tried it. I decided that it, it, I couldn't understand why it would be impossible to sneeze with your eyes open, so I decided to do it. There was also a safety component to this because I was driving at the time and I didn't want to take my eyes off the road, so I decided to sneeze with my eyes open and it was fine. My eyes didn't pop out, I still have both my eyes. So my anatomical account and then my personal lived experience of sneezing with the eyes open proves you can do it okay. Now, why do we sneeze? Sneezing is a reflex reaction which is designed to clear our airways of an irritation or an obstruction. There are classes of nerve fibres in the nose, sinuses, throat, which are irritated by inflammation or foreign bodies. So in other words, dust that you breathe in, infections that you breathe in, muck that's in your airways, irritates these nerves and they send signals back to the respiratory centers in the, in the brainstem, which are concerned with coordinating respiration. And they trigger this reflex, which involves screwing up your eyes tight and, and then a convulsive release of very fast air. The air traveling very fast, of course, to dislodge whatever the thing is that's gone into you that's irritating you because you've got fast moving air, lots of turbulence. It will have a clearing effect, either blowing out through high pressure obstructions or dislodging other irritants and spraying them out into the room. Microorganisms like viruses have learned to exploit this so that we encourage them to spread because by irritating our nervous system in our airways, they make you sneeze and that makes you spread the infection around. But its goal is to clear your airways and the reason we screw up our nose and probably where this myth about sneezing with your eyes open comes from is that you, you do have a connection between the front of your eye and your nasal passages because if you look at your lower eyelid right at the center roughly where it joins your nose you will see a tiny black dot this is a punctum which is a plug hole for tears and the tears that run across your eye from your lacrimal gland go across the eye and then down that black hole and they drain into your nose the idea being then you don't end up tears running down your face they run into your nose you can recycle the fluid and swallow it but when you sneeze, if you didn't screw up your eyes and squeeze that punctum closed, all the snot and other gubbins from your nose would end up in your eyes. And that wouldn't be good because it could give you infections and other debris and other things would then end up blocking the tear duct and also blocking your eyes. So that's why you screw up your eyes to sneeze. With sneezing in the sunshine, this is called the photic sneeze reflex. It affects about 20% of people. It seems to run in families, people say, and so if you have a family member who has this happen to them where exposure to bright light triggers a deluge of sneezes, then yes, it's likely you'll have that too. We don't know exactly why it happens. People used to theorise that when you look at bright light, it makes your eyes water. The eyes watering then causes more tears to trickle down into your nose, irritate your nose and then make a sneeze, but the reaction is too quick for that to be the case. So the theory goes that when you have bright light shining on your eyes, that part of that signal, which is there to cause the pupil to get smaller, to cut down how much light goes into your eyes, causes activation in the brainstem of those nerve circuits that do that, and some of that activity spills over into the sneezing centers I talked about earlier, and that triggers you to sneeze. Do animals do this? Yes, they do. 
I've seen my dog doing it quite often. I've seen our cats doing it. And my daughter had a hamster at one point and the hamster managed to sneeze as well. And it's quite, it's quite cute when the hamster sneezed, actually. So I think all animals have this airway clearing reflex. Whether or not they get the photic sneeze reflex and sneeze in bright sunlight, though, I don't know. I do think that Timon and Pumbaa in The Lion King, the um, CGI version of it, actually do sneeze once or twice uh, in the movie as well. So there you go, Disney cartoon says, animals as well then. You absolutely, thank you for that. <laughs> Alistair, thank you very much for that question. Back to the topic of uh, coronavirus and the vaccines. Kerry, you've got a question from Bedford View. What's your question for Chris? Hi, good day. Um, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead, Kerry. Hello. Okay, Dr. Chris, what I'd like to find out, please, is the Pfizer-BioNTech um, vaccine um, is a combination of a German and American company, and I believe that the majority of the stock is actually produced in Belgium. My question is, what happens when the, the um, vaccine is um, distributed around the world? Does the efficacy of the vaccine change? Um, because, yeah, and if so, why? And then also because why, like the repercussion of that is now, um, Liz Trust has said that um, South Africans who have been vaccinated in South Africa with the Pfizer vaccine, that vaccine is now not recognized in the UK. And I'm just battling to try and understand why we're all getting the same vaccine, but it's not recognized. The answer is that these vaccines are made to very high exacting industry standards. The quality control is excruciating. And and that's what pharmaceutical companies on the sort of scale of AstraZeneca, of Pfizer, of Merck, that kind of thing, that's what they're really good at, which is why they are at the front of this charge to try and stop coronavirus. So you get a vaccine of a certain type in one country, it's going to be to all intents and purposes, identical in another country, wherever you get it, because it will have been made in batches to a very prescribed recipe, which is also then tested to make sure that what's coming out at the end of this production line is the same. Now, in terms of uh, whether or not the the vaccines uh, work equivalently all over the world, because that's another thing to think about, we are making vaccines at the moment based on what we first learned about the coronavirus when the pandemic first emerged. We are, of course, seeing evolution of the virus and some new variants popping up. And because different variants dominate in different parts of the world, different vaccines may have more or less effect against those variants. And so it's not reasonable to say that the vaccine uh, works the same all over the world, although the vaccines have been tested all over the world and have been tested against very broad ranges of people of different ages, different ethnic backgrounds, different disease backgrounds. The idea being to try to work out as clearly as we can what their performance is in all these different contexts. So to all intents and purposes, the vaccines are the same, but the local environment might mean that the performance of the vaccine may be a bit different. And that's because the virus is evolving in its own way in each geography because of various local factors, and that may affect the way in which people do or don't accept people moving from one place to another because of the theoretical risk of variants emerging, new forms of the virus that may have the capacity to sidestep the immunity conferred by those vaccines. 
All right, Kerry, thank you very much for that question. And Chris, your final question for this afternoon, also pertaining to vaccines, is from Rod in Randburg. Rod, your question for Chris. Hi, good afternoon. I'll try and keep it as short as possible. We're running out of time. The cold chain on the vaccines, I see that when they come out of the factory, they're meant to be kept at uh, minus 70 uh, for a certain amount of time. And as they get distributed, the temperature gets reduced until you finally get to the vaccination point. What happens if the cold chain is broken? Does the vaccine actually lose its efficacy and become ineffective? Or does it just become less effective? Or does it become contaminated? Thanks. Thanks, some Roger. vaccines, in, some drugs, in fact, are much more tolerant of high temperatures than others. The Pfizer vaccine was the one that characteristically everyone said, well, it's got to be kept at minus 70 and then you can thaw it out near to where you need to use it. And you need to use it quickly, whereas, say, AstraZeneca's vaccine, this is uh, active at a much higher temperature for much longer, which makes it more appropriate for certain uses, such as out in the field, in the bush or whatever. The answer is that it's not like a light switch where it works until the temperature changes, then it doesn't work. It's a statistical thing where as you raise the temperature, the rate of deterioration increases. It's a bit like food. You know, we put food in the fridge. It slows down the rate at which food goes off, but it doesn't stop food going off completely. It still goes off eventually in the fridge. What you're doing by putting, putting things at low temperature is you are robbing energy away from the molecules and when molecules have energy, they're colliding and bashing into each other. So if you slow down the molecules and have less energy in the molecules, they bash into each other less hard and less often. So their prospect of falling apart happens less often. It doesn't mean it stops completely. But for the longer that you keep it colder, the more molecules will remain intact and capable of doing the job of priming your immune system compared with if you keep something at a high temperature, the proportion of the molecules that might have fallen apart and therefore the proportion of the dose that's actually potentially active is going to be lower at a higher temperature than a lower temperature. And what you've got to do is judge it so that you have the, the, the likelihood is that when you put the vaccine into a person, there's enough molecules in there still that are active to make the immune system respond Whereas if you leave it for much longer than that, then obviously that proportion is, is going to fall away. So there's a sort of sweet spot uh, where you want to keep it in that window of time so that you, you can pretty much guarantee when this goes into someone, it's got the best chance of working. No, for sure. It's an important question there from Rod in a South African context where many of the areas, of course, are miles away from city centres. Therefore, maintaining that cold chain uh, becomes essential. Uh, Chris, thank you very much. Thank you for allowing us to chat to you a little bit earlier. Next week, of course, you'll be back to the regular time on Monday afternoon after the 2.30 Eyewitness News with Azania Musaka. Have yourself a wonderful Monday. And you, Africa. Good to catch up again. Thank you.